amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on this incredibly, incredibly extra special episode of the show about the show. This is going to be an episode unlike any other that I have put out. You've heard me say that before, but my guest today has a story that is unmatched and reminds us about everything that is good in life, and and he still inspires people today. Oftentimes, you don't get to you don't get to talk to people who are the inspiration for movies, but that's who my guest is today, Jim Morris, the rookie. In 2002, the Disney film was made about him. He's got a great story. I'm going to bring him on, and it's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun interview. Jim, thanks for joining me today. I can't tell you how excited I am. Thanks, Devlin. I appreciate it. So let's get started. You uh, come talk about your childhood. It, it, you moved around a lot. Your dad was a. Uh, your dad was in the uh, armed forces, and you guys kind of moved around a lot. Yeah, my father was in the Navy, and he liked he liked to instill strict discipline, although he did not abide by it. Therefore, we moved quite a bit. And because of his strictness and the things that he did to me, he was verbally and physically abusive. Sports became my avenue for salvation. And so everywhere we moved, I'd find a group of kids, show up with my glove, throw a ball, and I had a team full of friends, never had to say a word. And so for me... Any sport, but mainly baseball, has been my passion since at the age of five. Who were some of your favorite players growing up to watch? Oh, man, we lived in Oakland, and Vita Blue, of course, Reggie Jackson, and then we move across the country to Boston, and there's Fred Lynn and Yastrzemski and Fisk, and just everywhere we moved, I'd find people. Louis Tiant, you want to throw like Louis Tiant, the only problem is, I'd try to wind up like that and throw it halfway up the backstop. It was just a fun time. That was that Absolutely. was when baseball to me. Baseball was pure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you were obviously you're a Texas native. You were uh, born in Brentwood. You mentioned that you moved around. You've lived in Connecticut, Illinois, Florida, you mentioned California, you mentioned Oakland and Boston. But you guys finally settled in Brownwood, Texas, and you you attended Brownwood High School, but you guys didn't have a baseball team, so you actually played football, and you had some success on the football team, didn't you? Yeah, I was an all-state punter and kicker, and I was also a wide receiver and a safety, and we won a state championship. And our coach, because we didn't have baseball, he goes, I'd rather watch grass grow than watch a baseball game. So we didn't have baseball. Football ruled. And that's kind of still how it is in some parts of Texas today, isn't it, too? Isn't Texas, you know, just big into football like that, especially high school? Absolutely, man. We've got two cities in Texas 
uh, Allen, Texas, where we used to live and our boys went to high school, a $62 million football stadium, and then two miles up the road in McKinney, they've got a $70 million football stadium for high school. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So you were originally in in the January amateur draft in 1982. You were selected 466th overall by the Yankees, but you chose not to sign. Can you talk about what went into that decision? Yeah, my grandfather, who is the mentor of my life and the person who basically changed my way of thinking, had come down and over a course of time from the war, World War II, he was exposed to a chemical, got ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was getting really sick right after I graduated from high school, so I wanted to stay close to home. So I went to Ranger Junior College about 45 miles away from home, and I would come home on the weekends and visit my grandfather in the hospital. And you were, uh, you obviously, you know, family decisions made it so that you decided not to sign. But late, later, you would, in 1983, you were actually drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers and you signed with them. And you had some arm issues. Can you talk about those arm issues and what eventually the result of that was? Oh, man. Um, first year rookie ball found out that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Everybody else was as good or better than me. And we had Pleasak on our team, and we had Burke Beck, and we had Jeff Parrott and uh, Mark Chiardi and all these guys who went to the big leagues. And then I'm like, well, I'm as good as they are, and yet I wasn't, so I would try to throw hard. I hurt my arm that year. And then the next year in the Midwest League, I went 8-9. and nine. I did somewhat better. And then – I went to fall ball, and I woke up one morning, and Plezak was my roommate, and I woke up, and my arm was bent, and I couldn't straighten my arm out, and it was purple from my wrist all the way to my shoulder, and I said, Dan, look, and he and I are trying to straighten my arm out on the, the coffee table in the hotel room. That's how stupid we were, and the next day, I'm in L.A. at Dr. Job's office, and he goes, you've got an 80% tear of your ultra, your, your medial collateral ligament in your elbow. So Tommy John surgery, spent a year out of baseball, worked on my elbow tremendously, came back and forgot about my shoulder, and then I hurt my shoulder. So Dr. Job fixed that up the next year. And, you know, three surgeries in two and a half years, and I got a job at home. I liked my job. Baseball wasn't working. I was tired of being on the operating table, and I quit. Four and a half years into the minors, I quit and went back to college. And I think the the movie, if I remember correctly, starts when you were a high school physical science teacher and baseball coach um, in Regan at Regan County High School in Big Lake, Texas. Talk about what made you decide to become a teacher. I mean, you obviously mentioned that you'd had the job, but why teaching? I had been yelled at, screamed at, cursed at, and hit my entire life. And I know for a fact that if you talk to kids like they're human beings, you get a lot more out of them than if you yell at them. And so I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk to my kids, and I'm going to teach them. One of the first jobs I got was at Brownwood State School when I was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. And I worked in recreation department, and all these kids would come through that had problems and issues, and they got sent to the state school, and I found out that I was very good with kids. 
And so when I went back to college and went full time, I thought I'm going to work with and if I can't play the game I love, maybe I can teach it. And so that's that was my thinking. I went back to college, found out I wasn't dumb like everybody had always said. School was easy. Uh, straight A's, honors fraternity, honors graduate, started teaching and coaching around Texas. And then I found my way to Reagan County High School in Big Lake, Texas. From the time you retired in, in the minors to the time you tried out for the majors, how what was your longest period of time between, quote, picking up a baseball? Oh, man. I went back to school, and I played college football at 27 and 28. And we had a team doctor who asked me why I quit playing baseball. And I said, because I wake up with my shoulder hurting so bad I can't go back to sleep. And by my end of my second year, as I got ready to graduate, he said, let me go in and take a look, and I'll see what's there. I'll fix it up. You'll be good as new. And at that point, it had been three years since I'd picked up a baseball. And when I woke up from the surgery, he said, you had a three-and-a-half-inch bone spur in your rotator cuff, and I had to reshave wow. your joint to make, make it fit, and you've torn up your deltoid muscle so bad I had to cut 85% of your deltoid out. You will never, ever pitch again. And I said, that's cool, man. I'm graduating from college. It's time to start teaching. And so it didn't bother me. And that's how I went at it. And I started teaching and coaching. And you were, at the time you were married, and you guys later on had a son and um, daughters. And you ended up actually coaching the Reagan County Owls in the spring of 99. You made a promise to them. What promise did you make to them, and how did that come about? Ooh, that's a tough story there. I had an athletic director who was pretty much like my father, and he stopped me one day on my way to practice in 1999 and told me, you've taken these kids as far as you can. Their parents are losers. The kids are losers. If it's ever close or they're ever behind, they're going to lose no matter what. And then he put his finger in my chest and he goes, and you, you may be one of the best baseball coaches I've ever seen, but you're too nice and you don't know how to step on people like me. So you're never going to be equal to me. And the deal with that is that two of my kids were right around the corner changing where I couldn't see them. And they heard every word in 90 seconds. This guy destroyed two years of work. And so I get over the baseball field. Everybody knows about it. We lose the first two games, 15-1 to one and 15-0. to zero. I was sending kids down the left field line. I stood on home plate. And you know, because of my grandparents, I've got a lot of faith. And I stood on home plate, and I said a prayer, and I said, what can I do to help these kids be who they're supposed to be? And the answer came to me and said, go down there and teach them what your grandparents taught you. And so I walked down the left field line. I started talking about hopes and dreams and goals and not giving up and you know, the one thing you start chasing that you think you're going to love may lead into something else you love even more. We don't know. But if you stop, other people are going to pass you by, and you're never going to be equal to what it is you're supposed to be. And then that's when they started throwing it back at me. They said, well, what about you, Coach? You gave up on baseball. And I said, I gave up because I had a hurt arm. They said, but we know you still love it. And so what it came down to is if they won a district championship, which this group of kids have never done in baseball, you try out again. They win. I try out. Three months later, after grading report cards, I'm in the big leagues. 
Yeah, you were uh, you ended up doing a tryout, and the scout wasn't actually really interested in you, but gave you a tryout solely <laughs> to let you keep the promise to your players. Is that true? Just so you could kind of save face. Absolutely. Pace? Yeah, it was Doug Gasway, and I said, "Look, you got to let me throw." I made a promise. My grandfather always told me, if you make a promise, you live up to it, because that's how you're going to be remembered. And so he said, I'm going to let you try out. But all these kids here, they're here for serious business. They have to throw from the outfield. They have to hit. They have to be timing a 60-yard run. Do you want to run? I said, I'm 35 and fat. I don't run. I said, I just want to throw, and either you're going to let me throw or somebody else will. And I get done. He looks at me this serious face, and he goes, Coach, why didn't you just shave your head like everybody else? <laughs> uh, where were you three months ago, man? And right. He goes, I'll let you throw, but you're going to throw last. And so four and a half hours later, after everybody tried out, he handed me the ball, and he said, how many pitches do you need to warm up? I said, to embarrass myself, none. And he giggled. He walked back behind the backstop. He picks up his radar gun. He goes, anytime you're ready. And the young kid catching me had just graduated from high school two weeks prior. And he gives me a sign for a fastball. I throw it perfect pitch you know you're old and fat and it's a good pitch you're like that is a good pitch and you look over the catcher's head behind the screen and the scout is shaking his radar gun you're like oh no i don't even throw hard enough to register and i finally get done and when i realized i was doing good was when one of the kids who had tried out he told the kid to get a bat and get in the box and the kid looked at him he goes you want me to get in there with that and I was like, oh, maybe I'm not doing so bad. And I get done. You're throwing 98, 99. What do, you, what do you say we get a call later and we'll talk about it? And I said, man, I got a job in Fort Worth. I said, this, I was never able to stay healthy when I was young and talented. Now I'm old and I'm you know, baseball ancient and it's not going to work. Right. And I got home. It was 12 calls. It wasn't one. And I went back two days later. I threw in rain so bad they had to have me a brand-new baseball every pitch, sliding up to my knee in mud, 98 every pitch. Two days later, I'm in Florida getting in shape. Now, one of the – obviously, you know, one of the big things in your life has been, other than your faith, has been your family. And can you talk about kind of the support that you had had at that time in your life? Obviously, your wife, Lori – or your, I'm sorry, your ex-wife, Lori, at the time, um, she was a big driving force behind that and your kids and stuff. Can you talk about kind of the support that they gave you to say, hey, you know, go ahead, take that step. If you want to try out, I support you. And Or did she not even know about, about the tryouts? Uh, she didn't even know about the tryout, and she was pretty mad. And, oh, I I get to... I get to Tampa in September, and we're playing the Rangers in Arlington. So I'm back in my home state, haven't seen my kids in three months. I'm putting on a big league uniform. I walk into a clubhouse with Wade Boggs, automatic Hall of Famer, and just Fred McGriff, Roberto Hernandez, all these guys. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. They're on they're on TV. And I, I didn't put it together that I was there for the same thing. And after the game – my now ex-wife had brought me my jacket for traveling because I didn't have a jacket with me. You're in the minors. You don't need jackets. And so she handed me my jacket, 
And in the movie, it goes, here's your jacket. I love you, blah, blah, blah. In real life, what it was was, here's your jacket. You need somewhere else to live when you get home. I'm moving on. And so at the best time of my life, when I realized my big league dreams, my marriage fell apart. And But my kids know that you can achieve anything. And that was the big point. And now, you know, two years after that, my stepsister goes, you need to go out. And I said, I'm not interested in going out with anybody. She goes, no, no, you're going out. And I didn't want to go out. Shauna didn't want to go out. And now we've been married for 17 years. We've raised five kids and everybody's happy and healthy. And I couldn't ask for anything more. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Now, um, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, the movie takes some liberties that, you know, for Hollywood and dramatic effect. But the scene that always gets me in the movie, and I want you to tell me if this is the, if this really happened. Uh, you know, base, baseball movies for me are, are extra emotional um, because I love baseball. I'm kind of like you. Baseball's always been my passion. My favorite scene in that movie, the scene that always makes me cry is when Dennis Quaid playing you um, finds out he's going to the big leagues and he calls his son. He calls his son, who's you know, he calls your son. You call your son, and it just—it's a father-son moment, and you can tell that it affected you just as much as it affected him. Is that how it really played out? Absolutely, and tell, tell me when about I that showed phone up call. in Texas, yeah. well, the phone call was was interesting. Um, I called Hunter. He was eight, and he said, when are you coming home? And I said, well, I'm not coming home yet. I I got called up to the big leagues, and he goes, when do I get to see you? I said, tomorrow, and he said, where? I said, the ballpark in Arlington. He said, where he went to the game two years ago, and I said, yep. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm playing, and the next day, I got to see him, and he was beaming from ear to ear, and he knew what baseball meant to me, even though it wasn't his passion because he didn't need it in his life to basically save him like I did. He was happy mm-hmm. for me. And it is amazing. He was eight. Jessica was four. And the one-year-old, and you're the first person I've been interviewed by who's going to get this scoop. The one-year-old in the movie whose diapers I was changing at the tryout got married last weekend. And she graduated college in three years, turned 21, and got married in, the, in two weeks. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, that, that's a great story. Now, kind of something people might not know about the movie, you had a very small cameo in the movie, didn't you? I did, and it's funny. We were working at the Round Rock Express. That's where we were filming the AAA part. And Dennis was pitching, and I was an umpire. And he kept throwing balls in the dirt, and I'm like, strike. And he's like, it's not even close to the plate. I said, yeah, but everybody's yelling at me because they're hot and they're hungry. And we just had this thing going back and forth, and it was it was kind of cute. And the one way people can recognize me is the back of my neck on my hairline. And even now, with no hair on the top of my head, I still got the same back of my neck, and I see that picture, I'm like <laughs> – Oh, I wish you had more hair. 
<laughs> Dennis and I had a good time filming that, and it was a lot of fun, even though it was about 120 degrees that day. So let's fast forward a little bit. You mentioned it briefly earlier. September 18th, 1999, you are in the ballpark in Arlington. The bullpen phone rings. Walk us through um, that phone call and then what happened next and then what the result was when you took the mound. I had thrown three days in a row in the AAA playoffs against the White Sox. And for me, I'm like, oh, they just want me to sit here and watch the game my first day in the big league. That's awesome. And then in the eighth inning, the phone rings, and they said, warm up. And I'm still not getting it. They're like, oh, they just want me to warm up in front of 40,000 because Texas was in first. I'm like, that's cool. I can do that. And two minutes later, I'm in the game, and I think that's when it hit me. You're not in the classroom anymore, dude. You're you're here, and you got 40,000 people looking at you like you're a specimen. And I make the run from the bullpen to the mound, and – Basically, everything I'd been through leading up to that point in my life at 35 years of age and failing at the dream and getting up and dusting yourself off and failing again and getting up and then having a group of kids, who would figure? And now you get your dream when it wasn't about you anymore and it was about them. Now your dream comes true and you're going out on the field to make your big league debut, not only in front of your kids, but in front of your high school kids. Not only in front of those kids, but the kids who I coached against that year, coaches had gotten school buses and driven nine hours to watch the coach who made a promise. And Johnny Oates, the opposing manager, God rest his soul, he led 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me. And most of them were my kids, my family, those high school kids, or other high school kids who I'd coached against. And so for me, that was a lot of fun. But I get to the mound, and – Larry Rothschild, our manager, a pitching coach for the Yankees now, was our manager, and he hands me the ball, and he goes, how many pitches is it going to take you? I said, dude, I am so high right now, I could throw through the catcher. And <laughs> I take my warm-up pitches, and Royce Clayton, an all-star that year, steps in. Tom Goodwin, the runner, at first is very fast. And John Flaherty is my catcher. He gives me a sign for a fastball. I come set. I check on Goodwin. And I throw it, and Royce swings through it for strike one, 98. And steps out of the box, kind of looks at me. And, you know, later I found out he's got a um, good friend on our team. And after the game, he's like, dude, he comes in throwing like Randy Johnson. What am I supposed to do? But back in the game, he takes pitch number two, strike two, 98. Fouls off the third pitch over the first base dugout and strikes out on the fourth pitch. That's your first appearance. You strike out the guy. And I have to be honest, he could have got a hit. He could have hit it to somebody. He could have hit it out of the park. I didn't care. I was there. And to get a strikeout is extra special. But just being there and competing against guys at that level at the age that I was after being out of baseball for 11 years, tremendous gift from those high school kids. Now, obviously, you know, this is this is all happening towards the end of the movie. And one of the more one of the more poignant scenes towards the end of the movie is that um, you and your father have a moment of seemingly reconciliation and you and you give him the baseball. 
Did that re- is that something that really did happen, and you and your dad were able to reconcile over that moment? Can you kind of talk about the, you talked about the per- the professional part of that, but can you talk about the personal part of what happened after that game, or what it, what effect it had on you? After the game, my father was waiting outside the clubhouse for me, and I did hand him the game ball. And there was a short reconciliation, and then it went right back to how it was. And that's just – that's been the whole whole time I've grown up. He missed, his, he missed his grandkids grow up because of his attitude. Let's just say that. But I gave him the ball. Sure. Now, on the movie set, Brian Cox is playing my father. I have no clue who Brian Cox is at this point. And he gets done filming that scene, and I'm standing next to my agent, Steve Kenner, and I'm watching – Brian Cox, and I'm watching Dennis hand him the ball, and he tosses it up in the air. He walks off set, and everybody gives Brian Cox a standing ovation. I'm like, all right, whatever. I go home, and Brian Cox is in like 150 movies. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's who he is. <laughs> yeah, and and is, so that was kind of the relationship you had with your dad, and you – you made a decision to obviously, you know, as a teacher and definitely as a parent um, to not kind of repeat that. You mentioned earlier, you know, you, you talk to kids on a, on a different basis, on a different level than you got talked to. Now your dad always had kind of a saying that he kind of used whenever you wanted to do something. Can you tell me what that saying was and kind of how that affected you? In the movie, it's G-rated, and um, it wasn't a G-rated saying. <laughs> he tried. He he paraphrased something my grandfather said, and basically, what it was is you're grown up and you need to make the decisions you need to make for your family. And in the whole time, I'm standing there. I'm like, but you didn't follow through with any of that when you were a father. And I learned how not to parent from my parents. I learned how to parent from my grandparents, who from 15 to 18, I lived with them, and they taught me about morality, and they taught me about my faith, and they taught me about ethics, and they taught me how to treat people. And so because of them, I am who I am, and I'll tell you this. The first time they put Hunter in my arms as a baby, I just sat there and cried. I I thought, who – who could ever touch a child? And right. that was how I parented. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I could not agree any more with you. So you make your you make your debut. You strike out Royce Clayton, the first batter. Um, you made four more appearances later that year. You made sixteen appearances in two thousand. And then your arm problems happened. Your last appearance was May 9, 2000, in Yankee Stadium. You entered that you entered a tie game in the bottom of the tenth with the bases loaded and Paul O'Neill at bat. What happened? I threw four straight balls, and now they would be strikes because the strike zone has been lifted. But back then, it was they were all balls, and. I later found out that Paul O'Neill didn't want any part of trying to hit off me, so I probably could have just lobbed the ball up there. But <laughs> I went and I had my I had my elbow tightened, and I didn't realize at the time, but for the next 10 years, 
my wife, Sean, and I chased down this diagnosis of what was wrong with my body, and what it ended up being was Parkinson's. So I had early-onset Parkinson's. Wow. Now, you you obviously, uh, Paul O'Neill ended up um, getting getting a game-ending RBI walk off of you. Um, you never pitched in the majors. Again, you made the minors in December. You signed a minor league deal with the Dodgers, but you were released. How did the movie come about? I mean, obviously, it's, it, it's a fantastic, great story, but how did how did it go from this is something that happened to me and I'm okay with what happened to Disney calling and going, we'd like to make a movie about your life or your story. Well, that's a loaded, that's a loaded question. And I'll try to answer all of it. Um, My third day in the big leagues, we went to Anaheim. Bill Plaschke for the LA times writes this huge article about me. It covers the front page of the Sunday sports page. In the L.A. Times, he interviewed all my kids in high school and everything else. I go down to the restaurant not knowing what's happened. I pull out the sports page, and I'm in the restaurant downstairs, and everybody's staring at me, and I'm like, why is everybody staring at me? I pull out the paper, and there I am covering the sports page. I went, okay, room service, and I went back upstairs. Over those four days in Anaheim, I got to meet different production companies and other places, and people want to do this with the movie and that with the movie. And then when my agent Steve and I are walking on to Disney premises in Burbank, he goes, what do you want? I said, I want a movie about high school kids who people count out. But I also want a movie about adults who give up on their dream too soon and don't know what it's like until they wake up one day when they're 50 or 60 and go, what if I would have tried one more time? And so we go upstairs, Michael Eisner's the president of Disney, and he goes, what we have in mind is a movie about kids who people count. I'm like, oh, my God, they have microphones everywhere. And he repeated (laughs) word for word what I had said, and I thought, this is it. This is where we're doing the movie. And he wanted to keep it like it happened. And so by the time I went to the Dodgers camp, I already knew we had a movie deal. We had a book deal. And – the deal with the Dodgers, I was, I, not, I was not released. I retired. And we're throwing, and the day before games start, I'm throwing batting practice with the screen in front of me, and they're hitting balls at me, and I can't tell how fast they're coming at me anymore because of the Parkinson's that I didn't know I had. And I'm like, if they take this screen away, I'm liable to get hit in the mouth, and it scared me to death, and I quit. And... We go home, I go get my kids, we go to the movie set in Austin and hang out with Dennis. That's that's a pretty that's a pretty incredible story. So I mean you're obviously now a motivational speaker. You've released an autobiography called The Oldest Rookie. We're running out of time, and I know you're. I know you're a really, really busy guy. I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you have things to do. Um, I have an 18-month-old daughter, and for anybody out there who might be a parent or who might still be chasing their dreams, what would you say to people that are chasing their dreams, and then people who are also raising kids? What are What are some things that you can? What's some advice that you can tell us from everything you've experienced in your life for chasing dreams and raising kids? Oh, you can talk the talk all you want to, and your kids 
will kind of listen to what you say, but they're going to watch your actions. And so if you don't give up and you try and you work hard and you get up every day and you do what you're supposed to do and you're raising kids and you're creating boundaries for them so they know what's wrong and right and you're showing you have the best interest for them, that is how you become a good parent. Right now we've got a country full of people who want to be their kids' friends, and that's not working out very well. We've got a bunch of entitled people right now and people who don't know how to work hard and people who don't know, hey, sometimes you fail and you got to get dirty and wipe yourself off and get back up again and get after it. Not everything is handed to you. You don't turn 16, get the keys to a Bentley, and go on with life. It doesn't work that way. And so I just want parents to stand up, work hard, and show their kids how hard work and what it stands for. That's, I think that will do more for our country than anything. Jim, we've got about we've got we're running over by about two minutes. I always give my guests the last thirty seconds to minute to pitch anything they want, their websites, what they have going on in their lives. What do you have going on in your life? Tell the people about what you got going on. And I cannot thank you enough for being willing to come on the podcast. This has been a dream of mine. I absolutely love the movie. I love your story. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Tell everybody what you got going on and where they can get anything that you've got going. Well, thank you, sir. JimTheRookieMorris.com. Uh, look me up. You can book me. We're speaking all over the country and actually all over the world. I've been to pretty much almost every country except the ones we're not allowed in. And I'm also writing a book right now that will be out next baseball season. It's called Dream Makers. And it's about one of the latest speeches that I've been doing for a couple of years. And people go, you need to write a book about this. And so we're working on that and telling people how to chase their dreams. Where can people find your autobiography, The Oldest Rookie? It's on Amazon, and they can go there and they can get it. Um, I didn't like the cover of the other of the hardback because they sent me this cover, and they're like, this is the cover. It's got, like, all these new baseballs, and it's got me being the old raggedy baseball in the middle, and I thought, that's not very nice. But it, <laughs> it goes through stuff, and that book was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done is when you got to sit down and look at the good choices you made and the bad choices you made and the road in which you're getting to where you're going and going, wow, I had to learn a lot. And you know what? To get to be where it is you want to be, we've got to learn a lot. And just I want everybody to know the dream you start chasing may not be the one you end up loving the most. See what's out there. One final question before I let you go. What's, what is the proudest moment of your life? Oh, proudest moment. That's tough, man. I got a 17-year marriage to my wife that I'm proud of, and I got five kids that I'm proud of. Um, But I think I'll save this and tell you, um, two months ago, my oldest son and his wife gave us our first grandchild. And that little girl is unbelievable and everything people say about grandkids is absolutely true uh, you get to hug them and love them and spoil them and then hand them back and <laughs> she is absolutely precious and so right now that is the joy of our lives and I cannot think of a better and more appropriate way for this episode to come to a conclusion ladies and gentlemen Jim the rookie Morris he's got an unbelievable story 
keep chasing your dreams, and your dreams will chase you. Jim, thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been my immense honor ever since I've seen the movie. I've always wanted to talk to you. I cannot thank you enough for giving me 30-plus minutes out of your Saturday. Absolutely, man. You have a great time, and enjoy those those twins while they're doing so good. (laughs) I will. It's few and far between, but I will. Thank you very much, Jim. You have a great day, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that that was just an unbelievable episode. Jim, Jim, Jimmy Morris, the rookie, 2002 Disney movie. Man, you you talk to that guy and and you really understand. He's got a good premise on on life, you know. It's just faith and family and really never giving up on your dreams and knowing that if you chase your dreams and you get knocked down, no matter how many times you get knocked down, you if you get back up, eventually it'll pay off. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, Jim the Rookie Morris. His book, The Oldest Rookie, is available now on Amazon.com. If you haven't seen it, check Amazon or eBay or Netflix or Hulu for the movie The Rookie starring Dennis Quaid. Obviously, Jim confirmed today some of it was real. Some some things didn't happen that way. But as a baseball fan and as a movie fan, it is an outstanding movie. I highly recommend it. This has been the end of the first season of this show about the show i will be back in season two with more great guests more entertainment we're going to do some giveaways and we're going to try to do this more on a regular basis this podcast would not be possible without my listeners and i want to thank all of you who listen to this periodically who listen to this regularly who go back and re-listen to old episodes i cannot thank you enough On Saturday, June 8th, 2019, I cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for making this podcast possible. Thank you to all of my Season 1 guests from Cole DeVries to Mark Gubiza to Jim Morris to Greg Kreindler to Mike Tromley to anybody else I'm missing. Thank you very much. We're going we're gonna to take a little summer break, and we're going to be back in the fall, and we will be back with Season 2. Thank you guys very much, and we'll see you down the road in podcast land. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.